Welcome to Fast Lane with Sarah Jane, a podcast for women who are on the move, managing life and family. Your host, Sarah Jane, is building a tribe and talking about the things that affect the daily lives of moms. You can expect real conversations about managing chaos, finding ways to take care of mind and body, and stepping outside your comfort zone on the way to living your best life. Hold on for a wild ride. Now, let's get started. I know an alcoholic you know an alcoholic, likely we all know someone who has had some sort of an addiction. This is common. This is so common. It is nothing to be ashamed of. And there's so many opportunities for help. I read the book Unraveled, which was written by Laura Cook Bolt and her son, Tom Bolt. And this book was great because it gave the mom's side and the son's side of addiction. They both struggled with addiction. They both overcame addiction and they are both alive and well and healthy and happy today and more than willing to help anyone on the journey of recovery. I encourage you to check out the book, Unraveled. It is a mother and son story of addiction and redemption. I spoke with Laura earlier this month. I was so pleased that Tom was available to speak with me too, to give his side of the story. And so I want you to go and order the book. I want you to read the book. And I hope you enjoy this podcast with Tom. My guest today is Tom Bolt, and he is the author of Unraveled. This is a book that I read roughly a month ago. I read it in just a couple days because I love reading books that I can't put down, and this was definitely one of those books. So Tom, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So this is pretty cool because I actually interviewed Tom's mom a while ago because she co-authored the book. And it was really cool because I got to see her standpoint of it. And being the mom of three boys, I wanted to also get Tom's point of view. So first of all, Tom, you want to give us a brief synopsis of what the book is about? Sure. Yeah. It, you know, b- Briefly, it's about uh, a mother and son and uh, my mom and I and, and uh, our journey through addiction and addiction or, or alcoholism, whatever you want to call it. So I, I see it as the same thing. And it basically just runs through uh, the cycle of addiction in, in both of our lives and how we came to a place of getting through that and coming out the other, the other end. So when your mom was addicted to... Uh, your mom was an alcoholic. When you were young and you were watching her go through that, what were you thinking at that time? Was that normal to you? Was it abnormal at that time? Or what, what are you thinking at that time? It was quite normal uh, for me to witness growing up. You know, it wasn't, you know, something that I saw a lot of. Uh, I was pretty young. And I, I think towards the end, I, I started to see a little bit more and more. Now, I didn't understand how the alcoholism was affecting her in personal relationships with with family and everything like that. We butted heads a lot as I uh, was growing up. So there wasn't wasn't too much that that I saw. I mean, there were a couple times where I was like, whoa, um, or she would come home and be, you know, pretty drunk or or you know, right before or right when before she got sober when she crashed her car. That was like a big thing for me. But other than that, I didn't see any anything that was out of the ordinary, probably because she, she kept it from me. 
Yeah. And how old were you then when she uh, went through recovery? Oh, I think I was uh, around 18. She had a couple years clean. I was 18 when when she went. Yeah. Because she had a couple years clean when I got clean. Okay. So the book was great. And it was very upsetting to read about your junior high experience. Like that school failed you very, very much so. Do you think that sometimes nowadays, or it doesn't matter just now, but do you think that being bullied has a tendency to lead to addiction? I don't think that, you know, for me, I wouldn't put um, a a lot around that. I, I mean, it was definitely not a great experience. Did it make me an addict? I don't think so. I think that I had the tendencies long before uh, the bullying, just in in the way that I thought. Did it help to speed things up? Possibly, but I, I don't think that you know. There's a lot of people that have gotten bullied in their lives, and they're not, you know, addicts. So I wouldn't say that that is um, you know a reason for for ending up the way that I did. So when you said that you maybe had some tendencies when you were younger, what do you mean by that? So. A lot of addict-like tendencies, always wanting more. I felt like I, I never really fit in, like people didn't understand me. I don't know how much of that is normal for a kid growing up, but that's kind of how I felt. And I was kind of drawn towards that kind of a lifestyle as I got older. I thought it was cool. I thought it was, you know, going against you know, the, the uh, older generation and what they thought was right. So a little bit rebellious, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess you could say, mm-hmm. which is uh, normal, I think, for a kid, you know, in their teens. But w- when I hit, it was like I hit a, opened a new door when I first got high. It was like, okay, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. Wow. Okay, so... <laughs> I think it's good to kind of preface this. So you were extremely bullied in school, like not just verbally bullied, like you were spit on and physically actually harmed at school. So it wasn't just verbal abuse you were going through. So in the book, it talks about how every Sunday night you'd be very upset because you wouldn't go back to, you wouldn't want to go back to school the next day. So when Friday would come around, did you kind of, were you back to your normal self? And then Sunday is when the anxiety started again? Yes, yes. I was so happy on Fridays because <laughs> I knew I had the weekend and I could do whatever I wanted and and not have to be in that kind of an atmosphere because it was pretty it was pretty gnarly at school for a while. Mm-hmm. And are you a parent right now? I am not. I am well. I am in a relationship. Um, with an amazing woman, and she has a daughter, and we live together. Okay. So, so having a child her, around, but, like, yes, does it worry you to send your child to school at some point because of this? Um, well, yes. I mean, so, you know, without giving too much um, away, it's when things happen at school, 
you know, I can, or when I hear about things happening to people in school, no matter who it is, it can trigger something inside of me that I flash back to that and it upsets me. And I think that there are a, a lot of ways to handle a bullying situation, but it, it, it upsets me because it's like, I feel bad for the individual going through that. So in my case, if that were to ever happen, I would definitely be in contact with the school and how to resolve the situation in a healthy manner. Because mm-hmm. you were at a private school. It's not that you were in some podunk school. Like you were in a well-respected school. And this, I mean, so I'm, my point is that this can happen absolutely anywhere. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I, I was at that point in my life. I was at a at a private school and a private, you know, religious school, and a lot of what they preached was not being put into action. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was a rambunctious kid, and I I did things for attention to to gain friends, and so I, I quite possibly made it a little bit worse for myself by doing that. But I didn't I didn't have the education on on how to deal with it. I didn't know what I was doing because I was so young. I just was trying to do the best that I could. When one evening your mom gave you a Valium because you sounded like you were having an anxiety attack, what mm. was that experience like for you? Oh, it was. It's a quite familiar experience to me now, but then it was intense. It was, you know, doom and gloom. And nothing that I could do would calm it down. And I was pretty young, but I was old enough to know that, you know, this is not right. Like my brothers aren't dealing with, with this type of, of emotional stuff in, in, in their life, at least as far as I could see. And so my mom gave me a volume. To, to kind of calm me down and it all went away. I mean, all of it. And I fell asleep fast. And when I woke up the next morning, it was back again. But I thought that that pill was the fix. And, and so I had that in the back of my head for years. Mm-hmm. So when was the kind of breaking point of where you really heavily got into drugs or alcohol? How old were you? Oh, I was probably 15 when it started. I had just lost my grandparents in a car accident on my dad's side. And I had switched schools. I I got out of that private school and went to a public school. I started making friends there. uh, And I started getting into different things. At first, it was a hookah. (laughs) So we were smoking a hookah. And that was like seventh grade. And then seventh to eighth grade, Eighth, it, it jumped up a little bit. I think eight. I think the summer of eighth to ninth grade, when I was going from middle school to high school, that's when I started smoking a lot of weed and experimenting with other things. And none of it ever scared you. Like you were never scared to try any of this stuff. Yeah, I was. I definitely was. I was, but I would do it anyway. And I would say to myself, I, I wouldn't even think about anything else, like like painkillers or Xanax or. Or cocaine. I wouldn't think about any of that stuff. I was like, that's not, that's not me. But eventually it was. And eventually I needed more. So marijuana worked for a while and then it, it, it didn't. 
And um, I remember visiting with a friend at school and he was doing opiates. And he's like, just take one, you know, they're fun. And it took me about a day. And then I finally was like, yeah, give me one of those. And then that, that just kickstarted me. So which, what was your drug of choice? My drug of choice, uh, if I were to narrow, narrow it down to one thing, I would probably say that it was uh, painkillers. So any, any form of uh, opiate in a pill. So not to give too much away, and I want everyone to read this book, and I think we can talk about this book all day long and people still need to read it. But at the beginning of the book, you have a story in there about what happened between one night between you and your friend. And at first, I was thinking, is he writing this book from a jail cell? Because, you, you know, and yeah. because I yeah. thought, did the friend die? Did, is that what turned your life around? But thank God that did not happen. So let's talk about that event. What, what uh, goes through your mind now versus then? That was, oh my gosh, that was a scary night. Uh, that was actually Halloween night in 2012. And I remember it like yesterday. I mean, because, it, and I was so high and drunk to where a night previously, I, I wouldn't, you know, I don't know what happened a week before that. Um, mm-hmm. But that night, hit me um, because I had been running around that night like a crazy man. I had just gone through a breakup and I was drinking and, and doing a lot of drugs and gotten a couple fights. And then I ended up back at my friend's house and we got into a, an argument and I just snapped and we kind of grabbed a hold of each other and pushing and shoving. And then I just shoved him hard and he was tipsy too. So he fell over the balcony and uh, landed on the uh, the driveway on his head, and he was out cold. And I thought that I had killed him. I thought that I was going to jail. That I had killed him. My life was over. And he ended up waking up and being just fine. But it was it was scary. And the next morning, I woke up and it was I was done. You know, I I was like, I cannot do this anymore. And um, I need help. And uh, it just, that's, that was the event. And are you still friends with him today or no? I am not. No, we, we weren't best friends at the time. We were more friends and coworkers. Hmm. But there's a, there's a lot of people that when I, when I went off to treatment and got sober, that I started a new life. So there's a lot of people who I was friends with not, uh, then that I'm not friends with now. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, part of that is life. Part of that is moving on. And um, that's just the way it, it kind of played out for me. Were there any friends that were as into it as you? Like you knew whenever you wanted to go out and get drunk or get high, there was always someone specific you could call or not? Yes. Yeah. For, for a long time, it was like that. And then, you know, and then it started to catch up to me because I wasn't like them. I mean, I reacted to that stuff in a different way. I got violent and I wanted to feel pain. I don't know. I just wanted to, to break stuff and, and get into fights. And 
so they actually would stop inviting me around to certain things because of it. In the end, besides that last kind of hurrah, I mean, a lot of it was alone and by myself. Wow. And you were 21, correct? Or 22 when you went to rehab? I was 21. Yeah. I, I had turned 21 in August and then I went to treatment in uh, November 2012. That's wild. Like how fortunate you were to wake up at that age because you still, I mean, you really have your whole life in front of you when you're 21. Right. That was a game changer. Oh, 100%. And I had no idea. I had no idea. I mean, I had gone through the phases of addiction so quickly. I mean, from, from starting off and doing it every now and then to more frequently to every day and then to having things happen like getting arrested or losing friends, breaking bones, getting ended up in hospitals. I mean, it went pretty quick for me. So, I mean, I'm lucky that it did that because mm-hmm. I, I, I was able to do it fairly young and, and create a life for myself. Whereas other people, you know, sometimes they get sober at 40, 50, 60. So, mm-hmm. when they've already ruined relationships with their children or their other family mm-hmm. members. Yep. Was there any other times, obviously, that after that Halloween, that was the make or break you were done? Was there any other times where you really gave it a go at quitting? Or was it just a passing thought maybe? Yeah, there, there were some times when I would feel depressed and when something would happen and my parents would sit me down and be like, what is going on? And I would, I would give it a shot. You know, I, I never gave it a fair shot. I never did until I finally got help. But I thought I was giving it a shot. There were, there were a couple times when I would detox on the couch. My mom would help me, and I thought that I was trying, but I really wasn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't. I didn't know what I was doing. But and you continued a close relationship with your family throughout this. Like you and your brothers were very close, correct? And your parents. We're closer now, definitely. I think with my brothers, there was some separation there towards the end. You know, we we all love each other, but. I was not a pleasure to be around. Uh, so uh, our relationships then were not what they are now. Um, did, did any of them say anything to you, like want you to quit or allude to anything like that at any point? Yes. Yeah. My brother closest in age to me would, would be, he was concerned. And he thought that I was just a piece of crap. And I knew that from conversations I had had with him. And I would tell him, you know, I stopped this or stopped that. And he's like, oh, that's great. And that was it. You know? He didn't believe you? He didn't, he, he, he didn't care because he didn't see any change in me. Mm. He was just like, yeah, whatever. You've said this like four times before. So we'll see. <laughs> did that hurt ever? Like, did it bother you? It did and it didn't. I mean... I was so self-absorbed and it was everything was about me that I really didn't, but I did because I love my brothers, you know? Mm-hmm. So it did hurt a little bit. You had quite the crash yourself. Oh, yeah. And, and you mean uh, physically? I, yeah. I, I got in a motorcycle accident. It was pretty bad. I left the house pretty angry. And an argument I had, I had just gotten into with someone. I don't remember who it was, but 
I did a quick loop around town and came back and was coming up a hill and went into a turn and just lost control and hit a tree and totaled the bike and ended up in the hospital. It was not a, not a fun experience under the influence at the time too. So the, it, there was a lot of concern around that, a lot. I mean, the doctors were concerned. Uh, they gave me talking to in the hospital mm-hmm. because they hooked me up to an IV and then I was on a pain medication drip and it just was like truth serum. <laughs> like it was like maybe it was a maybe it was you know I was asking for help um, too, but I just let it all out. My parents were in the room, the doctor was in the room, and they were like, "Whoa!" But you were pretty so, smooth with that doctor because didn't wasn't she wanting to kind of get you into treatment? And you were, I'm going to quit. I'm going to stop now. Here, this ends today. Yeah, I said everything that she wanted to hear. <laughs> you know, she's like, "Give me one reason why I shouldn't hold you." And I said, I'm done with this stuff. That was it. I can't do it anymore. And um, she talked to me for a while. And um, I said everything that, you know what? And part of me meant it. Part of me thought I meant it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a bunch of broken bones. So the minute I got home with those painkillers, it was game time. Wow. And how old were you when you had that accident? I think I was 20. You still had a good year left. It was a it, it was a wild year. There was a lot that happened that year that I don't remember. Um, that year went pretty fast. We were as a family dealing with a lot. There was uh, some loss on my mom's side and mm-hmm. some traumatic loss. Yes, yes, there was, and um, and there was a lot of it in about a four year span. And so there was a lot of running around and and and. A lot of, I don't know, it, it, craziness that was going on during that year. And I say this respectfully because I do not find this to be funny at all, but the book is extremely entertaining because you talk about how at one point you're running down the highway on Halloween and how much energy you have and how you feel like you're invincible. You talk about the fight you had in a bar. You, it's very well written. Like It's very entertaining. But that was your real life. Like, you're so fortunate. You didn't get hit by a car that night. And you're so fortunate. You know, there's so many things that really could have went wrong. You're meant to be here. I agree. Somebody, you know, somebody or something is looking out for me during that period of time. And there are a lot of things that happened that I did that could have ended up so badly. And if something wasn't looking out for me or if I wasn't as lucky as I was, uh, I wouldn't be here today. Mm-hmm. No question. Because I was reckless. I mean, drunk driving, high speeds, um, pushing my, my cars and, and my, my motorcycle to the limit, seeing how fast I could go under the influence. I mean, it was dangerous. It was, it was I was sick, you know? It was, I... I I just feel like I do feel lucky and fortunate and grateful to be here today. When you were going through that, did you ever think, I don't want my brothers to do this? Yes. Well, I I knew that I didn't want them to feel the pain that I felt. Mm -hmm. Uh, I knew that for sure. If they could, yeah, I, I think that 
if they if I found out they were doing some of the things that I was doing, I would be uh, a little bit scared. I don't know why, but I thought that I could handle it and they couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> You're the big brother. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about when you sat your parents down. Was that a pretty emotional time? Were they feeling relief, anxiety? What What was going through your head when you sat your parents down and said, all right, I, I'm done. I'm done with this now. Well, I was emotionally, physically, and, and, and mentally drained. I mean, I was, it was like you, if you like just crack a, um, crack a stick. I mean, it was like, it, it was a turning point for me. And it was also a low point because I gave up in a way. I, I said to myself, you know, this is it. It's over. Whatever happens, happens. Screw it. And when I sat them down, that's basically how I laid it out to them. And I was like, you know, I, I need help. I'll do whatever. And um, they were relieved. My mom actually called my, my father and, and told him to meet us at the house, at their house. And because she thought that this is it, like this is the time, he's going to get help now. And so she was relieved and he was relieved. They were probably both very anxious because I actually had to wait for five days mm-hmm. until I could get into that treatment with an open bed. So I actually had to continue using for those five days because I didn't want to get sick. And the treatment center actually recommended that I do do that because it can be dangerous coming off of, of, of drugs and alcohol. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it can be very dangerous going through an alcohol detox and it can be very dangerous going through um, a detox from, um, from you know, uh, uh, Valium or or anything like that, you can actually seize up and you can actually die. I don't know if there are any other drugs that do that. I, th- I think there is one more recently that, that can do that. But for the most part, it was, it was those two things. And so they were probably terrified in those five days. I didn't know if I was going to change my mind or yeah. take off. And I didn't either. I didn't either. I just... Mm-hmm. So how did you happened. find that facility? How did you choose that one? So... My mom actually gave me a list of places to call. I started to look and do some research and call around and I just went with it. And actually, I had had somebody that I knew that went through there and another person that I knew that knew the, knew the facility pretty well. And so I just said, yeah, I'll go. And, and that's kind of how we, we chose it. At that point in time, I didn't really care too much. Um, I just knew that I needed some kind of help. Mm-hmm. And you were there for 90 days. I was there for 30. So 30 in that one. I, uh, I was in that one for 30 and then they had a family week and I was ready to go home. I thought I was cured and it was over and it was not the case. And <laughs> I ended up being able to choose a place to go to for another 90 days. And I chose Newport Beach because the ocean, the sun, yeah. you know, who wouldn't want to get, continue to get sober by a beach. Yeah. So I went there for 90 days. So do you, did you keep in contact with anyone from either of your facilities that you're at? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I am in contact with multiple people that I went through those, those facilities with. 
You know, I actually ended up living with a gentleman that a couple a couple guys that I went through there with years after. And it's it's tough when you make friendships in there because this is a disease that tells you, you that you don't have it. It's it's one of the only things that tells you that you don't have it. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't make it. And I had a very close friend of mine who I went through with and who I actually ended up living with. And he went through a spiral when we lived together and he actually ended up passing away, overdosing and, and dying. Oh, no. And um, that's just the, the world that I live in. You know, if I want to continue to, to stay sober, I have to keep in contact with other people that, are, that want to continue to stay sober as well. And unfortunately, sometimes those people don't make it. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's sad, but it's the, it's the honest truth of, of what can happen and what I deal with. And I think it's important for people to realize that, like you said, you thought you were done after 30 days. You can, this is a lifelong battle. This isn't you go somewhere for 30 days and now you're cured. You have to constantly work at this. 100%. You have to work at it every day. I mean, I do. I have to work at it every day. Other people might not, but I do. And a lot of the people that, that I'm friends with that are sober, they do too. And 30 days is not enough time, in my, in my opinion. 30 days is only the beginning. That's a, that's a physical detox period. When you, use and you, when you use drugs and you drink the way that a lot of addicts do, it is a very detrimental to your thinking uh, the way you view life, the way that uh, when you do it in the way that is addict-like. And so it takes a long time to get that back. And it takes a long time to get the brain, the hum- you know, the, the brain back in working order and functioning and firing um, the way that it should when you don't have those things. And I, I, don't, don't quote me on this. I'm not a scientist. Um, and I haven't done the, done the research on this, but I have heard for a long-term opiate addict that it takes five years of, of abstinence to get your brain back to the way it's supposed to be. Wow. Which is wild. That's a long time. Yeah. So what's it like for you now when you see someone that you know has a problem? Like, let's say you're just out eating and, or you're in a social situation and you know a person, let's say, is an alcoholic. Can you tolerate that or are you... Is it not a good thing for you? I can tolerate it. I can definitely tolerate it. And I've had experiences where people that I'm very close with have uh, family members that are struggling addicts. And, and so for me, it doesn't affect me when I don't know the person. When I start to get to know the person, it, it affects me because I care. Yeah. Um, and I don't want anybody to go through that kind of, of, of pain. Um, but if say if somebody's like getting, you know, blackout drunk around me, it doesn't bother me unless they're f- disrupting me. Um, in the in the home, it's different. If, if if that's my my safe place, so if somebody's doing that in in my in my home, then yes, it affects me. Which I think is disrespectful if they were to do that to you. Yes, it is. It is. But at the same time, I can't. I I, I can't. Um, ask or, or 
um, think that somebody is going to change the way they are just because of what I've been through. True. Um, so yes, it, it can be. Uh, but at the same time, like if I'm going to invite that person into my house, that's going to be, that's going to be my part, partially my fault as well. Right. That's true. So can you, or do you have alcohol in your house or do you stray from all of that? I do not have alcohol in my house. Um, I am in a relationship with a woman that lives her life like I do. So we, we do not have alcohol in the house um, at all. There's no reason for us to have it. Mm-hmm. I always find it interesting if one person goes through like a rehab and their spouse doesn't, that it has to be difficult. And the reason I say that is because in this household, if one of us is doing an exercise program or like a different eating pattern and the other one doesn't follow it, it doesn't go anywhere. And that's very minute in life. So you think about doing something like this and both of you not being on the same page, I don't know how it would uh, survive. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. Um, A good, a good topic for sure. You know, it's so now you're, you're, you're kind of talking a little bit about um, some codependency stuff. Yes and no. So I know a lot of people that, that are sober that are in relationships with people that, that don't have a problem and, and they drink. It's not to say that in my relationship now that we, we don't have the same views uh, on a lot of things. We do have the same views on a lot of things, but we are, we are our own um, individuals at the same time. So what she likes to do, you know, in terms of a diet or something like that, it might not be something that, that I want to do, but I will support them. I will support her. Mm-hmm. So if, if she, if she, if there's and vice versa. So if there's something that I want to do that she doesn't necessarily want to do, then, um, she will do what she needs to do, but she, she can also be supportive of me as well. We actually had that we had a discussion like that last night where she, you know it's the classic question of what do you want for dinner <laughs> and i'm like i don't know what do you want you know and um, cuz i don't care i'll eat you know i'll eat whatever mm-hmm. but i think pickup sticks i don't know if you ever had it it's like a little chinese uh, restaurant but i was like i want pickup sticks that's what i want <laughs> and, and so that's that's uh, where we went with that but um you know, that could be hard for some people, especially mm-hmm. early on. If you're early on and, and your spouse or your significant other is still drinking, it can, be, it can be difficult in the beginning. Do you think that the sober you and the not sober you, was that almost like your alter ego? Were you two different people? Yes. Yes. I was still the same person deep down, but that person never came out. And if it did, it came out in, in little spurts. So the alcohol and the drugs, it turned me into a different person. It was a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation. You know, that's the best way to, 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 to put it. So I have been, and I always will be, you know, a loving, compassionate, hardworking, trusting guy. And I have a huge heart. And I had that then, but it wasn't in use. And I, and I didn't grasp it. I had cut that off. So it was like, why am I not in contact with uh, my God or my higher power or my spiritual um, self? Like, why, why is that not helping me? It's because 
I put the drugs and the alcohol into my system. And when I do that, I shut it off. I shut that door. So when you take that away and I start working on that stuff, then it comes back. When you went through rehab, is it easier to relate to someone who has been through recovery versus let's say I were to be a counselor and something like that. Is it easier to relate to someone who's been through it versus someone who has just gone to school for it? Yes. Yes. In a way, you know, I have a therapist now who's not in recovery, but she gets it. And some people do not. I think, you know, if there are people listening that, that struggle with alcohol and drugs, I think it's important to, to explain to them, there are a lot of different stories when you start, you know, comparing stories in, in, in the life of uh, addiction and alcoholism. There are a lot of different lows, physical, I'm talking about physical stuff, um, you know, jail time. Um, losing loved ones, uh, car accidents, losing all your money, losing this and that, living on the streets. And you don't have to have that happen to you in order uh, to be an, an addict. So I think it's important to realize the spiritual, um, the spiritual uh, uh, mental lows that happen. And, and that is where the connection happens because you can put 200 people in a room that suffer from alcoholism and drug addiction, you know, the same thing. And there are different programs for, for each thing. But say you take all those people and you put them into a, a room together. Each one of those people is going to have a different story. They're going to have a different story of how low they went physically, how bad it got for them. But all of them can relate on the fact that they were afraid, scared, they were depressed, that physical, or, or not that physical, the, the emotional and the mental and spiritual lows, they will all be able to relate on. So I think that's, that's where you have to, you know, people should start looking because the, for the longest time growing up, I thought an alcoholic was somebody that lived under a bridge and drank out of a brown paper bag, and a drug addict was somebody that lived in a in a in a in a drug house and and had you know cuts and track marks all up and down their arms, and that's just not the case for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's just what that's just one one uh, experience for each one. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about being in a room with 200 people who've been in, in a situation like this, when you went to rehab and you're in, in the group therapy and you hear people talking about their experiences, when you first get there, what are you thinking? Oh my gosh, this person's way worse than I am or, oh, they don't know what I've been through. Or do you have a common bond when you, when you sit down? Yes. So the common bond happens. It, it's, it is good to share stories like that because it creates a, a back and forth with another another person. So I'm not saying that those stories are are bad. They do serve a purpose, especially for somebody that's brand new walking in and they hear somebody speaking about you know this or that or I crashed my car and I did this and it's a quick connection that somebody can make to them. But when you start digging further and deeper, that's when the real the real connection starts to happen. So what do you what would, advice would you give for parents? to look for signs in their children or what could I do as a parent if I see something with one of my kids? Ultimately, um, the harsh truth of it is 
is there's nothing that you can really do. You can be vigilant um, and you can have conversations and you can, you kind of have to, to look at their actions and, and um, see what's going on. I, I mean, it can be different for, for everyone, but I think for parents, it's important to, um, if, you, if you see that your child is struggling and you know that they're struggling and you force them into uh, a program uh, or you force them to go get help, it's not going to turn out well most of the time. Um, there, there are programs that uh, will, if you're under 18 and you're struggling with these issues, they will actually come into your house and take you and your parents sign off on it. You're not 18. And they will take you into the wilderness and they will keep you there for six months or two months. What do you think of that? Like that's against your free will. Are, are they coming out of that wilderness experience and just hitting it even harder or is that beneficial? I have, in my personal experience, I have never seen one person that has gone through that and came out and stayed sober and been better. Really? I, ha- I haven't personally. I'm sure, that there are sto- I'm sure that there are people that have. But I think that when you do that to a child, you automatically cut off that trust. Um, you cut off that bond. You cut off that that father-son, father-daughter, mother-son, mother-daughter relationship because they have felt deceived and unwanted. And so especially for a child that's under the age of 18, I mean, there's a lot of that stuff that is very important to a child. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's important to be able to talk to your parents and, and be able to share things with them and, and, and comfort. And when you do that to, to a child, it, 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 there's, it's traumatic. It's traumatic. And so now on top of what they're going through, they have to deal with that as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, the honest truth in the way that I see it is you kind of just have to let your kid hit rock bottom and whatever that is for them. And it's scary and it's, it's not fun and it's hard. But when you keep paying for their stuff or, or, or keep trying to help them with money or, or anything like that, you're, you're prolonging it. Mm-hmm. you're prolonging it. So there has to be some tough love, but there also has to be some compassion. Mm-hmm. And I have been told several times that if your kids ask you about something, to just be honest, because if you don't tell them the truth and then they go ask someone else and someone else gives them the truth, your credibility just goes down the drain right away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my parents have, have been upfront and honest with me about most things. I think as a parent, I can only imagine that you want the best for your child. I mean, you want, you want the best for them. You want them to live in a, in a world that is amazing. And it's just, I agree with some of that, but there's also some, some hard truths that a certain age children need, need to learn. You know, it's not all butterflies and, and rainbows. I mean, don't get me wrong. You can have an amazing life. Everybody can have an amazing life and, 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 and that is awesome. But I think that there's a lot of things that are portrayed in our society today that are just not truthful. And I see a lot of it in movies. Um, I picked, For my personal experience, I mean, I picked a lot of this stuff up in movies um, and shows and stuff like that, where it's like, 
you know, everything's great and you meet the love of your life and you go off together and, and <laughs> it's all amazing. You know what I mean? But yeah. people go through stuff and it's hard and it takes work. So I think kind of teaching children that, you know, prepares them for a future so that when they go out on their own, they're not hit with a ton of bricks. You know what I mean? Exactly. You know, I have said that before that because we're pretty strict with our kids and not that they don't get to do stuff, but we do expect a lot out of them. But I will say, you know, you're going to be dads or husbands or, you know, grandpas or something someday. So you can't have everything handed to you. Like you need to learn how to do some of the stuff. Granted, I have young kids. But if we have like really young kids, but my second son, if we, we don't drink very much here, but if we have a drink, we are like interrogated. He, you know, yes, I can't believe you're having a drink. You had a drink earlier this week. Did you just drink all the time now? And we're like, well, I mean, we, no, we don't because we can go months without having a drink. And so we just say to them, well, you can have a drink now and then. It's if you're drinking every single day. That's you know not normal or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I just try to plant the seed. Like people can drink. That drinking isn't bad. You just can't drink nonstop. I mean, is is that an okay thing to say to your kid coming from where you you're sitting? Yeah, I think that's an okay thing to say to, to say to your kid. But you know that at the end of the day, there are some people that come home and they have a glass of wine every night. And there's some people that come home and they have one beer every night. And they're totally fine. Yeah. And, and, and there are people that come home and have a beer every night and they're not. So yeah. I think when you look at... It's scary because people see alcohol and drugs as the problem. And when you switch your, your perception around and, and you change how you look at the, the situation of drug addiction, how do I say this? It, it brings a lot of stuff to light because say you take the drugs and alcohol away. So you forget about those. The addict is still going to have issues, if not get worse, if they don't do anything, because that is the solution to the problem. It's not the problem. So there has to be some sort of spiritual solution. So I think when talking to kids about it, it's just awareness of what it can lead to. I've been naive, I will admit. And I've had a few people on my show who have gone through recovery. And I did at one point, like with my dad, I would be upset when he wouldn't quit drinking because I would think, well, this isn't good for you and and you should know better. That it is not that black and white. No, it's not. And you know, it's, I wouldn't beat yourself up uh, too much because it's like, if you don't know, you don't know. If you don't have the experience, you don't have the experience. You mm-hmm. can only ask questions and come to your own conclusions. So it, it's something that everybody knows about. You know what I mean? It's like right. if somebody were to say that they you know, have cancer, I mean, I don't know what certain types means. You know, I don't know what it means. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know what medication or, or what to help fix that. You know what I mean? I have no experience in that. But yeah, some of the stuff just is, just takes experience. You just have to be willing to learn about it. So is this your life's work? Do you help people recover at this point or no? Uh, I do. Yeah, I do when I can. Uh, I try. If, if somebody reaches out to me uh, for help, I'm, I'm there. I'm there to talk to them. 
and, and guide them through it. And it, is it what I do for a living? It's not. It was at one point, but I had to kind of separate myself. And, and I'm not saying that the people that are in that line of work don't. Um, but for me, I had to have my life and I had to have my recovery. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was mixing those and it was hard because of the type, type of guy that I am. You know, I, I may look like, uh, you know, I don't deal with, with, with uh, emo- emotional things. You know, I may um, look that way, but deep down, I'm a, I'm a compassionate and loving and kind man. And, mm-hmm. and when I was working in that field, it was hard because I was meeting new people all of the time and watching them self-destruct. And I would, would love these kids. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, like when you get sober, you're so raw and open and it's, and you get to share those experience with another person and being able to be the ears for somebody and listen to them and, and build a bond with them and then watch them go back out. It was tough. It was tough. And I still have to deal with that because I, I still want to help as much as I can, but I also have to take care of myself yeah. and I have to, I have to have my, my own life and do what, what makes me happy. So like, are you anyone's sponsor? Like do, is there anyone who specifically calls you if they're going through a hard time? I mean, yes. Yeah, I, I am. Um, and I work with guys all the time. I'm uh, one text or one call away. Sometimes I prefer the text. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we all do. We all do. But I have to take those. I I have to remember that I was there once too, and I was in pain too. And and when I called and when I texted, someone Mm -hmm. always picked up for me. Mm -hmm. So it would be unfair for me to reap the benefits of sobriety and not give that back to somebody else. Do you ever call anyone now? Is there anyone that you ever have to call now or are you? I don't have to, um, but I do it uh, daily. I stay in contact with four or five guys or five, six guys every single day. Wow. And um, I do that because I want them to know everything that's going on with me. So they know everything that's going on with me. I know everything that's going on with them and we go through life together because it's a team deal. It's not a single person thing. It just doesn't work like that from what I've seen. Mm-mm. And I think it's important for people to realize that if this is something that you want to kick, having a team, there, there's absolutely no shame in asking for help and having a team support system. Yep. And I, I think that um, it makes it difficult for people because the society that we live in, not so much for women, but for men, it's, it makes it for anyone in that type of a situation, it's going to be hard to ask for help. But I think when you add the layer of being a man and being strong and fighting through it and mm-hmm. um, all that stuff that, that you know, I was taught as a, as a child, which is nobody else's fault, but it made me harder to come to terms with asking for help. So I think that if anything, it makes you an even stronger man uh, or woman for asking for help because everybody does. And at the end of the day, nobody knows, you know, we all know what we're doing, 
we're, you know, there's no, there's no training manual for life. So we just, we just kind of go off of, you know, what other people are doing and other people's experiences. That's so true. Well, you are in, you're an inspiration. You, you've done great things and it's great to see, it's great to see you like this because like I said, the book was wild. Like it was raw. You're right. You wrote a very raw, real book. And I think that's why it was so easy to read and, and fun to read. Yeah, I did. I just threw it all. I, I threw most of it. There's some stuff that I left out in there, but for the most part, I threw it all out there on paper because I'm like, this is me. This is this is who I am. And if you don't like it, whatever. If you do, let's talk about it. And hopefully it helps, you know, if it helps just one person, I'm cool with it. Mm-hmm. And I really like how you said about how alcoholics or, or drug dealers, you think of people living on the street and you look at you or your mom. And you were nowhere near living on the street, mm-hmm. you know, come from a loving family. You're not paycheck to paycheck. This literally can happen to anyone. This is a yep. disease. Yep. And it, it does not discriminate. It does not at all. I mean, you see it. I mean, you see it. Just take a look at, at Hollywood. <laughs> it's all the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you have those guys that, you know, you, you, you do, you see it. Um, you see the... Uh, the basketball players and the and the sports athletes and um, those guys that make millions and millions and millions and now have zero. I yeah. mean, and 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 they're like, wake up and they're like, what just happened? Um, so I mean, it can come to that, but you you don't have to, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, what race you are, how old you are, um, what sex you are, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Well, I applaud you for doing what you're doing. And I encourage everyone to read Unraveled. I think it was a great book of you. And are you writing another book too? Uh, I'm not. Um, I do want to write another book. Um, I'm finding a kind of a direction to go in with that. But uh, Laura is writing another book. (laughs) Wow. Okay. I, I, I knew that she was, so I didn't know if you were. But reading this one... I think you could probably dive pretty deep into like what recovery and all that kind of stuff is like. So I'm, I'm not counting you out. I think we'll see something yeah. else from you yet. <laughs> I think so. I think within the next year or two, you probably will. All right. Well, then maybe we'll have to have a discussion about that as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm ready for it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Fast Lane with Sarah Jane podcast. If you like what you hear, share the podcast and hit the subscribe button so you get updates on all new episodes. And we truly love feedback, so ratings and reviews are appreciated.